0: Today on Government Matters, explosions at the Kabul airport lead to more questions about the evacuation plan from Afghanistan, the lessons learned from the war, and how to manage the evacuation from here, and bolstering cybersecurity efforts for the federal government. A look at the new initiatives that will have federal agencies and the private sector working together. Government Matters starts right now.
1: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gergis.
0: This is the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gergis. Explosions outside the Kabul airport killed a number of U.S. Ser- service members and caused civilian casualties. The escalation of violence has complicated the Biden administration's plan to evacuate those remaining in Afghanistan. Anthony Cordesman is chairman for strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He has served as a consultant to the Departments of State and Defense during the Afghan and Iraq wars. Tony, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mary. What are the implications from these deadly explosions?
2: I think that they are a warning that we are watching a transition to a very unstable Afghanistan. The fact that the Taliban have largely taken over doesn't mean they control the country or the various factions and divisions in it are over. And it's very clear that ISIS-K is a much more extreme group in some ways than the Taliban is. I think this is sort of typical of what happens in many countries when an insurgent or revolutionary group takes over. It's defeated the government, but it doesn't mean it is a government. It's coherent or you see an end to violence and terrorism.
0: So what complications will this add to the the effort to meet that evacuation deadline?
2: Well, I think it already has created some very serious problems. People are having to find new entry points. Everyone is trying to rush their own citizens and the Afghans that supported them out, not just the US, but of course our allies and other countries. They're trying to find ways to work around the entrance to the airport, but there really is no good alternative in many cases. But uh, Tony,
0: are there enough American troops on the ground to secure the airport and to deter further attacks? Or is this just gonna keep happening?
2: Well, it can keep happening. We are partly dependent on the Taliban. It is a very large airport. The the ISIS-K probably has weapons which certainly can bypass the immediate screening groups of troops at the gates and entrance. And all it takes is one person with a bomb wrapped around their body to sort of infiltrate in with the other Afghans and people trying to get into the airport to create another incident. There is no magic way to totally ensure that there won't be acts of terrorism and carry out an evacuation at the same time. But I think it is certainly clear that people will crack down as much as possible, that there'll be a much better perimeter defense than there was before these incidents occurred.
0: So the Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby says to prepare for contingencies. How can we do that given these recent events?
2: Well, you certainly can try to find more use of helicopters or other ways to bring people in. You can extend some aspects of the defenses near the gates. You can put more people into the perimeter You can provide unmanned sort of reconnaissance systems to provide more coverage that goes deeper in looking at the crowds and at people who might be coming into the perimeter. There are a lot of things you can do that will certainly help. I think the problem we have sometimes as outsiders is to assume you can be leak proof and that anything that happens is a result of negligence. The truth is that there's only so much even the best system can do.
0: Tony, you wrote a piece called Prepare Now for the Next Crisis in Afghanistan. What is that next crisis?
2: Well, the crisis we already see is this is a country of 37 million people. The refugees are certainly important and our citizens are certainly important. But the fact is, what happens to the Afghans? We already see the banking system has collapsed. Nobody has money. You have major problems in terms of food supplies. Employment jobs have almost collapsed in many urban areas. The entire economy is frozen. The aid money that was critical for the functioning of the government And really, the major source of real incomes for many Afghans has been frozen. And no one knows what's going to happen next or when any shifts will occur, or even when the Taliban will try to have a functioning government. So the crisis we have is not one of several hundred thousand refugees. It's one of about 36 million people who aren't leaving Afghanistan.
0: Well, I mean, Tony, I really do feel bad for the the Afghans that are left in Afghanistan, but how does that relate to our strategic interests for Americans?
2: Well, it's a very good question, and it's one where the historical precedents indicate that at least as this crisis continues, a lot of our strategic partners and other countries are going to question American Resolve, how much American security guarantees are really worth. You already see that in Europe and in Asia. You see it in the Middle East. It takes time to really reestablish that you are actually capable of protecting and being an effective ally. A lot of it is leadership. Some of it is simply time. But are countries like Iran, North Korea, China or Russia able to exploit this situation, at least in the short term? The answer is clearly yes.
0: Tony, we're going to take a quick pause here, but we will continue our conversation after the break. Ahead on Government Matters, the lessons learned from the war and the future of counterterrorism. You're watching Seven News. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Anthony Cordesman about the lessons learned from Afghanistan. This comes after an explosion at the Kabul airport killed a number of civilians and U.S. service members. Tony, the president has said to the terrorists responsible for the airport attack, quote, we will hunt you down and make you pay. How?
2: Well, you certainly can often locate centers of operation for groups like SSK. They certainly do their best to hide in the population, to not sort of target themselves by communicating in ways we can trace. But we have sufficient technical means often to locate a specific target and even track the movements of a key leader or person. It can often take time to get to the point where you're absolutely certain that you can kill that person or attack them or capture them without, in the process, hurting civilians. But sooner or later, you can get to at least some of the leadership cadres. And if there is a large open training center that isn't buried within the local population or there's a fixed facility, you can attack that. We need to be careful, however. Can you suddenly get rid of an entire extremist movement? Obviously, you can't. Quite aside from ISIS-K inside Afghanistan, very large numbers of ISIS fighters survived in Iraq and Syria and continue to attack there. So is this something that we will be able to defeat in any serious way, I mean sort of totally halt, the answer is no. It's going to be an ongoing battle at best.
0: Well, Tony, let's talk in the broader sense. How should the Pentagon really manage counterterrorism efforts moving forward? How how do they hit those training bases that you talked about?
2: Well, often you have to be very careful. Uh, You don't want to go in and simply bomb a facility if it has... A significant civilian population you characterize the target very carefully you figure out the areas where civilians aren't present if it is a large isolated facility that's easy then you can target it but what we've been doing now for well over a decade is creating a mix of intelligence systems that mixes human intelligence short-range intelligence collection assets satellite coverage and financial coverage and that allows us to target over time the groups almost anywhere in the world is it something where you can target everybody suddenly the answer is no does it mean we can wipe out organizations even in a relatively small country not by ourselves but we can certainly to tear and damage them and often deflect them so they focus on local targets rather than international
0: ones. And Tony, you've written in your latest commentary that we need to be sure to capture the data necessary to learn from the experience in Afghanistan. What is that data? Well,
2: there is a vast amount of data on how the Taliban took over. A lot of it was somewhat ignored, people focused on the fighting, the military dimension, not the political dimension. We certainly need to examine how it gradually sort of infiltrated, corrupted parts of the Afghan forces and government, changed its messaging to reach out to the Afghan people. All of these techniques are lessons as to how other groups are likely to emerge in the world, some of them closer and more able to threaten the United States. We have a lot to learn from being much more realistic about how capable the Taliban was because we spent so much time trying to justify our aid efforts that we often, frankly, did not tell the truth about the fighting and the progress the Taliban was
0: so how can we apply those lessons to future military operations? So what are those lessons that we haven't learned from Afghanistan, from past wars, that we need to start considering from now?
2: Well, one is that you, and perhaps the most critical, is our nation-building efforts more or less fail. But the civil dimension, creating a system where the people feel secure, are willing to support the government, where when you actually win a military victory, the end result drives the insurgent or the terrorist group out of the area because you followed up with the civil progress people need to see to become active in resisting those groups. This is critical. We did not do well in the civil image. I think another key issue is we need to understand that insurgencies are not terrorism or extremists. They are sophisticated political movements as well as military ones. And we characterized the Taliban far too much in terms of being an extremist group and ignored how efficient and effective it was becoming. I think at the same time, we failed to basically realize we had to have an understanding of the countryside, and we focus far too much on defending the cities rather than the country.
0: All right. Well, Tony, we're going to have to wrap it up at that. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your views with us.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Coming next, bolstering cybersecurity for the federal government, straight ahead on Government Matters, the ambitious initiatives from the White House and the private sector. You're watching Seven News. Recent high-profile cybersecurity attacks show that both the public and private sector are at risk. The Biden administration has a new plan for a, quote, whole-of-nation effort to address cyber threats. The White House says nearly half a million cybersecurity jobs in both the public and private sectors remain vacant. Ari Schwartz is managing director of cybersecurity services at Venable. He's former special assistant to the president and senior director for cybersecurity. Ari, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. So in the past, the private sector has been reluctant to share information on cybersecurity threats and to follow government guidance on hardening their systems. How is this plan really any different from past efforts for the government to work with the private sector?
1: Well, I think what we hear in terms of this whole of nation approach is that in the past, there's been really a major focus on the DOJ, on the Justice Department on, on Homeland Security, on uh, the Defense Department doing the protection, leaving the role in the private sector to the security geeks out there um, and not inv- necessarily involving the leadership. And th- this is a really a goal to spread to everyone, every part of the government, um, every part of uh, the private sector and get them involved into this discussion.
0: So what do you think needs to happen then for the public and private sectors to work together effectively?
1: Well, I do think we're going to see, start to see ramping up of uh, the, uh, what is required of uh, both the private sector and the public sector in uh, what, what they do. And uh, by that, I mean, I do think we're going to start to see a little more regulation, a little more mandates, and that that flows down into the contracting space. Um, so that the uh, those that provide services, those that supply supply chain services to uh, critical infrastructure, to government agencies, are gonna ha- are gonna be re- have strong requirements on them.
0: So you know, as we mentioned, it's the executive order says whole of nation approach to bolster cybersecurity, but is that feasible? Um, Perhaps uh, suggesting that every part of
1: of the the nation is gonna be uh, extremely knowledgeable and working on cybersecurity is probably a little ambitious, Um, but at least ramping things up from where they are today. And I think that to start that off, uh, they brought in uh, CEOs from a lot of different sectors and not the security sectors, right? I think that was a key point that they made was that they were bringing in uh, people, CEOs from uh, the major tech companies, but also, the major banks, the major uh, um, other folks out there, insurance companies, et cetera, that need to be a part of this in order to uh, make it
0: work. Right, because their networks are certainly vulnerable and uh, critical to uh, to the American public. But as I mentioned, you know, in the intro, there's half a million unfilled cyber jobs. What's the role of federal leaders, do you think, to fill those jobs?
1: Uh, there's been a long-term push to try and fill those jobs, and it's a tough road to go. Uh, I think what they've really tried to do here is to try and uh, bring in a lot of educators into the space from different levels, so that you have major universities, you have, and, and you have small community colleges, and each, uh, each of them trying to kind of put in what they can do and uh, to move more, more, more students into the space of uh, deciding that they need to go into this area, because there are jobs there. Um, we've had open jobs for a long time in cybersecurity, and the numbers are only growing. Um, we are getting more people into the space, but the, at the same time, the jobs be, continue to grow as well.
0: Well, it is pretty difficult, given you know the government doesn't pay as much as the private sector. As well, is there something that government can do to incentivize people to apply?
1: Well, government does provide a lot of training for people, right? I mean, I think that that is really the key to get people into to go into government is that you can really learn uh, quite a lot there in a short period of time um, in government and go out back out to the private sector and make a good amount of money, much more than you would have before you went into government. So I think that we th- there need to be more programs that do that. There have been a number that have been set up uh, recently where um, Companies will pay to help do the basic training, send people to school, then they'll go into government for a few years and then come back out to the private sector and the private sector is already kind of set up that, that, that that's what's going to happen and working with specific agencies to do that. I think we need a lot more programs like that and, and make them bigger in order to make, have success in that realm.
0: So right now the White House is calling these all recommendations. Is that going to be enough? And are mandates coming? And you know, should we be prepared for that?
1: Yeah, I do think mandates are coming. We're already starting to see it with uh contract with federal contractors that the mandates are ramping up uh, with DOD and CMMC um, that that eventually is going to happen. Uh, it's on a probably a bit slower track than it once was, but um, we will continue to see that ramp up. Uh, but then uh, b- even beyond the DOD, we're going to see that with the federal government, I think as well, and all the contractors from the federal government. Then we'll start to see that with critical infrastructure and, and uh, their suppliers and you're gonna start to see that ramp up more and more. Um, Regulators, I think we need need to become a lot more uh, invested and a lot more interested in cybersecurity than they have in the past. It can't just be uh, the cybersecurity experts out there that can't just be DHS uh, telling, giving the advice to the regulators, it has to be the regulators themselves uh, becoming more knowledgeable if this is really gonna work.
0: So Ari, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, is creating a framework for industry to follow. In the 30 seconds we have left, what security measures do you think NIST and industry can agree on to protect that critical information?
1: Well, NIST has a NIST cybersecurity framework as the key basis for this. So there already is something that, the, that industry has done and industry has worked with them well in the past. Now we need to expand that out to the, to the supply chain. And I think that's really the key. And I do think that private sector really wants to work with NIST to do that.
0: All right, well, thank you very much, Ari, for being on the program. Nice talking to you. You too. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website too. And tell us what you think about the program. You can reach us on LinkedIn. Follow us to get the latest updates and see what's coming up on the show. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on the issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.